That's not how it works. Well, that's what I heard. Wait, but who? Who told you that? Star Trek, Terminator, Time Cop, Time After Time. Quantum Leap? Wrinkle in Time, Somewhere in Time. Hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Basically, any movie that deals with time travel. Die Hard? No, that's not one. This is known. I don't know why everyone believes that, but it isn't true. Think about it. If you go into the past, there's still adult content and spoiler warnings for binge mode, which can't now be changed by your new future. Exactly. And now, Binge Mode Marvel. Today we have a chance to take it all back. You know your teams, you know your missions. Get the stones, get them back. One round trip each, no mistakes, no do-overs. Most of us are going somewhere we know. That doesn't mean we should know what to expect. Be careful. Look out for each other. This is the fight of our lives. And we're gonna win. Whatever it takes. Good luck. Wow. A yeah, five years in the making. Uh, Beautiful. Oof. And welcome to Binge Mode Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! <laughs> what a great website, sire. Joining me today, now that he's finished asking who puts mayo on a hot dog, Vile. Clint Barton's demented family, that's who. It's concerning. They were better off gone. They were better gone. <laughs> Don't bring them back, Clint. They're perverted. Disgusting. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's your favorite time heister, Jason Concepcion. Actually, I don't want to kink shame. That's fine. But I will have two mustard please, Mal. Yes, same. And two Avengers Endgame episodes of Binge Mode Marvel where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga, the comic book lore that inspired it as Phase 4 approaches. Please make the journey back to Morag with us. And don't kick the lizards for no reason. That's just rude also. It's not nice. Quill. By following this podcast on Spotify... Or subscribing wherever you get your podcast, and please rate and review us. Give us the five star ratings, or we won't let you play video games with Meek and Korg or Nude Master sixty nine. <laughs> None of them. If you're looking to catch up on our prior <laughs> seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive: binge mode Game of Thrones, binge mode Harry Potter, binge mode Star Wars, binge mode Weekly for free, exclusively on Spotify, mm. and. Uh, Go ahead and smash that subscribe button on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to virtually dance to to it's been a long, long time. And don't forget to head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch holds up during quantum realm travel. 
Sure does. Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we gathered with Goose, Mr. Snoofers, to discuss Captain That's Marvel. Right. <laughs> and today we're diving deep, deep into part one of our two-part Avengers Endgame discussion. Part one will include the Bifrost, talk about the development of the film, our big picture, takeaways, memories, impressions, questions, etc. Jason Sanctum. Part two will include the character-by-character thematic arcs, the six, and the winner. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning for this episode. We will be going deep on details from this film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and the wider Marvel canon. So protect the pim particles at all costs. Because it's There's time. So few of them. <laughs> so few. Come on, Hank. Because it's time to head back to the future right after this. Avengers! Assemble. Mal. Yeah. That is America's tookus. I agree. And these are America's plot points. It, the ass look good. So let's offer up a brief. Not really that brief. Not that brief. Refresher on what actually happens in Avengers Endgame by opening the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Night Realms. The Barton family farm at the end of the events of Infinity War. Barton clan enjoying some fresh air, leisure time, outdoor Ah. activities, some foul Mm. mayo on a freshly grilled hot dog. Disgusting. Slathered in mayo. That's what (sighs) I want is a phallic piece of meat slathered in white. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I want to eat that. And then the snap. Devastating opening to this movie as Clint's family turns to ash all around him and only Clint remains. Hawkeye, but he misses it. Misses it completely. (laughs) It's Heimdall-esque. I've done everyone. Where did <laughs> they go? See what happened? <laughs> In space somewhere, between Titan and Earth, Tony Stark and Nebula pass the time in their dying ship. Fuel and sustenance depleted, but their commitment to paper football intact. Dare I say strong. That was fun. <laughs> Nebula was so delighted to finally get a win, Jay, you know? I know, that was really great for that. That was a big moment for her. It was. A lot of history of of taken L's. Tony records a final message. Oof. Pepper Potts. Absolutely crushing. (laughs) Crushing sequence. It's always been you, Pep. As he fades away, a blinding light signals survival in the form of the arriving Captain Marvel. On Earth... Steve Rogers is shaving off that fugitive beard at Avengers HQ, much to Mallory Rubin's immense, immense frustration and disappointment. Petey Wales for Cap's Infinity War beard. 
he will never get laid now. <laughs> he looks great no matter what, but I'm just very <laughs> fond of the beard, as you know. I'm sorry. When who should arrive outside mm. for Carol Danvers carrying a spaceship and the skeletal visage of Tony Stark and Nebula, who's fine because she doesn't need to eat. Our heroes, like the whole world, are shattered and traumatized by what has taken place. They take stock of the damage, and they find that Thanos kept his promise. Half of all life has been extinguished. Tony, absolutely unmoored by the enormity of what he feels is his personal failure, lashes out, mostly at Steve, but really at everybody. And then in a really funny, like, fish flopping one time onto the ground kind of way, collapses. Amazing sequence. It just makes me laugh every single time. When the when the last, like, energy flies from his body and he just goes, he's just, like, down. Well, he had been through a lot. You know, it was great to he see. He had been through an immense amount. Tony and Cap reunited at last. Obviously, they had a lot yeah. to work through together. They did. But nobody was there to, to pull a, a Darcy with Thor and say, how space, maybe if someone had asked, how space? they would have realized that Tony needed a restorative snooze before getting down right. to group planning and all that that entails. Hey, guys, how space? Tony! Tony! Mew, mew. <laughs> <laughs> the remaining heroes managed to track Thanos to the garden. Nebula knows it well. Thanos was always loading up Zillow. Check He's out his dream property. <laughs> Lovely fruit, plenty of fresh ingredients for his afternoon stew. He's retired the armor. It's up there in the iconic yes. comic image scarecrow form, and he's just kicking it in his gray leisure wear. Looks like he's ready for an afternoon <laughs> game of pickup. He really does. The plan, stop me if you've heard this before, is to kill Thanos. Okay. Take the stones away from Thanos. Yeah. Here's the twist. This time they're going to use them to bring everyone back. It's a great idea. Yeah, why not try? You know? <laughs> but when the Avengers arrive after that amazing sequence, who hasn't been to space? Anyone gone to space for the first time? Love seeing the cosmos reflected in Steve's eye and thinking back to his humble Brooklyn Origins, and there he is a century later in a spaceship. Incredible. They arrive and they discover some advanced scouting from Captain Marvel. Uh, not only does Thanos not have an entire army, he's alone, just kicking it. And after a brief chat, they learn something else. That surge that allowed Rocket to track him in the first place, that's because uh -oh. Thanos used the stones to destroy the stones. Very tough, very tough Very stuff. tough. <laughs> tough look for our guys, the Infinity Stones. Rough one for them. In a rage, Thor does exactly what Thanos told him to do back in Wakanda. He goes for the head. Stormbreaker needs but one swipe to behead Thanos. <laughs> Nebula brushing the blood off her face. That was rough. And we've arrived at a moment of debate right. <laughs> here in the Binge Mode family. To wail or not to wail for Thanos? That is the question. We would like to give Thanos whales. It feels appropriate. Cram and Isaac are 
I don't think it's it's too strong to say appalled and disappointed. Yeah. And Cram views this as a betrayal because we mercilessly mocked him for wanting to give bells to the Night King. And he is pointing out what he considers to be base hypocrisy. What say you? I say- What say you? What say you? Here's what I say. The Night King, as much as I I absolutely stand for the Night King, the White Walkers, and that whole crew north of the wall, loved them. Loved what they were doing for many a season on Game of Thrones. You love what they were all about. Yeah. I loved the energy they were bringing. The Night King, uh, he didn't ever speak. He didn't do anything. He raised his arms. That was really cool. But he mostly just walked very, very purposefully, but very, very slowly across the screen. He didn't have any real scenes. A lot he didn't of do meaningful anything. He was eye not contact, a character. Though. Sure. I'm not sure if you have heard, but Jon Snow once looked into Look his, his eyes. Look into his eyes. That's looking into his eyes. <laughs> Davos. I was just thinking about Davos the other day. Looking at the He's the best. Hasn't seen his kids in years, but it's fine. What kids? I, whales for Thanos. <laughs> Let's give him to him. Whales for Thanos. I don't feel so good. He doesn't feel so good because he's dead because Thor cut off his head. But he does feel good because he achieved his mission. He knows peace. That's right. That's why Thor's coachable. Go for the, you tell him once, go for the head next time. And he does it. Mm-hmm. That's why he's a star player. You don't have to tell him three times, four times. Franchise and cornerstone. And pull him and bench him. You sell him once. He goes right out there and he does it. <laughs> I love that. So I love that guy. Five years later. And remember how you felt in the theater when those words Astounding. very purposefully appeared on the screen. First, just five. And I'm thinking, what? Day, months, like what? And then years, yeah. when years came up, there was, I, my theater gasped. It was a gasp. Me too. Absolute jaw dropper. Five years later, the earth mourns. Steve is running group therapy sessions in what we, we can only assume is his tribute to Sam, helping yes. others process and pick up the pieces. Meanwhile, in a San Francisco storage facility, lucky for the entire universe, a grateful universe turns its eyes to the four-legged form of a rat that steps its little gnarled claw toe on some button that triggers the quantum tunnel in Luis's van, returning Scott Lang from the quantum realm where he's been languishing since the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp. He's back, folks. At Avengers HQ, Nat is trying to manage what's left of the Avengers via Zoom. And Rhodey tells her after everybody else clicks leave meeting <laughs> that uh, Clint has become... How to put this? The assassin Ronan. Okay. Assassin is, I think, a little... It's making Mild? it seem... It's making it seem like a legitimate Dignified. profession if you just say assassin. <laughs> is serial killing out here. He's on a bloody massacre spree across the <laughs> yeah. globe. Taking out criminals, gang members, <laughs> anyone up to anything nefarious, he is taking it upon himself to eliminate. He has also decided to cut his own hair, clearly. The divorced man energy coming off of him is unbelievable. <laughs> what do you think of his uh, 
Tattoo sleeve. Full sleeve. I mean, he's going through it right now. The sleeve looks great, I have to say. I'm not super into the haircut, but I love I love the tat sleeve. On the heels of learning this about her dear friend, Clint, you know, the inspiration behind the arrow necklace. Yeah. <laughs> Nat receives a visitor. Captain America ever heard of him. He's there for a chat. And they share a really lovely exchange about how hard it has been to move on, the pain that they are in. But they are interrupted by a ring at the front door. It is Scott Lang all the way from San Fran. Didn't think to call, didn't think to text, did not send an electronic letter, as Thor would say. And we know that reads email because she gets emails from raccoons. Scott didn't reach out, just showed up at Avengers HQ. Weird. It's a little random. I think you should call, and then they can come get you in the Quinjet. You know, the yeah. Quinjet's not doing Maybe much right now. Maybe he turned into Giant except- Man and just took a couple couple leaps and bounds. I mean, that, <laughs> that would have been amazing. He does say he's hungry. I mean, yeah, just call. It, uh, just say it would have been easier, but that's fine. <laughs> Scott, between bites and chews and swallows, mm-hmm. launches into the story of the Quantum Realm how he was trapped there, how time okay. moves different there, and how, mm-hmm. because of this, mm-hmm. what if time travel is possible? Feels like a leap, but I'm with you. It might work, but I know somebody who, who would know if it could work. Tony Stark, let's go see him. Tony, up in the Eco Lodge. You know Tony. Yeah. He's always about that clean energy and that clean living. That's right. Loves clean energy. He has spent... The five years processing his feelings, processing not only his grief, but the promise that he made to Pepper and working to fulfill it. No more surprises. They're raising their daughter. They had a child, Morgan. She is precious and we love her 3,000. And Tony, we got to say, is not exactly elated to see his old pals. No. They show up on his doorstep and they're pitching a cockamamie time ice plan and he has a life to live, a family to protect, turns them down. After he turns them down, what can they do? They go to see the next smartest person they know, Bruce Banner. That's right. Or should we say Hmm. Smart Hulk, but Professor Hulk in our, for the purposes of this podcast, Smart Hulk for the movie, Professor Hulk in our lives. Yes. After 18 months in the Gamma Lab, (laughs) I put the brains of the broad together. Oh, God. I love it. Now, although time travels a little bit outside of of Bruce's expertise, Mm -hmm. he agrees to help, readily agrees to help. Later, back at his eco-lodge, Tony, just out of curiosity, just like messing around at home, Mm -hmm. does some research into it and then just very, very, very casually invents time travel. Literally took him 30 seconds. He did it. Fueled by the power of a late night juice pop with Morgan. Inspired by her own ingenuity after she discovered the rescue helmet in the garage. Yes. Thank you for noting that. (laughs) Tony just leaving like multi-million dollar weapons (laughs) around for children to put on and walk around with. Come on. Would you expect anything else? No. This is Tony we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I would not. 15-year-old Peter Parker with 
500 some web combinations and instant kill. <laughs> yeah. Instant kill. He could have killed everyone around him easily. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably one of the tests that Morgan had to pass before he upped her allowance. Find mommy's helmet, activate instant kill, get a juice pop. It's just wild. (laughs) Tony, a little too trusting. I do love a glimpse of Tony in the domestic sphere, though. Love seeing Tony as a dad, and that's obviously incredible. And then just the little things. Tony doing the dishes. No dishwasher at the Eco Lodge? I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Build a dishwasher. <laughs> what are you doing building? Tony. It's like this guy got out of the weapons business. He's building multi million dollar weapons for his kid to find. And it's like, if I'm Pepper, I'm like, build us a dishwasher? What are you yeah. doing? Like, design a dishwasher. Cracks time travel in 17 <laughs> seconds, still drying each plate by hand. <laughs> yeah, why? Tony. God. Back at Avengers HQ, Banner, happy to help. But his first time travel test is a near disaster. They pushed the time through Scott. And come on, everybody knows you can't do do that. that. Let me guess, he turned into a baby. (laughs) I do love when Tony shows up and says that. He's of course right. Scott (laughs) turned into a baby. Scott turned into a young adult. Scott turned into an old man. Scott wet himself. He is not sure when, whether it was baby him or old him, but he knows that he... Saturated his undergarments. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) But then, two proud MCU traditions arriving in tandem. Tony Stark here to save the day and some choice Audi product placement. Tony drives up in his new (laughs) e-tron. And he's willing to help. He just cannot risk losing the life he has now. Can't risk what he has to bring back what they lost. But he has brought something else. A gift for Steve. Captain America's shield. Incredible moment on the heels of the absolute gut punch of Tony in Civil War telling Cap that he didn't deserve that shield, that it didn't belong to him. Giving it to him again. Heartwarming. The call goes out for the Avengers to assemble. Not the official Avengers assemble, but just like everybody come back here. Stay patient. Hulk and Rocket travel to Tonsberg, Norway, the site of new Asgard to recruit Thor. Hey, angry girl. (laughs) 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 I think I liked you either of the other ways. I think I liked you either (laughs) Either of these. So good. Oh, God. The God of Thunder is in a little housemate sitch with Korg and Meek right now. He is spending his time watching them play Fortnite, drinking vast quantities of beer, eating pizza, and not cleaning up. That place has to, you know that it absolutely stinks. I don't know what rock farts smell like, but they can't smell good. Interesting. What if it's just like dust? You know, like if you rubbed two rocks together. <laughs> like so, It's got to be like some kind of sulfur dust. Well, Meek's I mean, Meek just lays eggs everywhere. Foul. You know? foul. Is that some sort of protoplasm? I mean, imagine if you had to ask your roommate constantly if that was their protoplasm. That would be tough. There's just like little maggots crawling around the house all the time and they're Meek's children. 
terrible. <laughs> Eventually, after a heart-to-heart with Hulk, Thor agrees to accompany his friends back to Avengers HQ. To Tokyo, where Nat finds Clint. We hope she actually finds him moments after he finishes his latest serial killing spree, this time of the Yakuza <laughs> clan and not the alternative, which is that she observed and let him finish and then said, what's up, she my just, guy? Like, she just, it, I gotta say, it does appear like <laughs> she just is standing there while he's just like absolutely murdering. <laughs> just a tough look for both of them. I'm always thrown in this sequence by how Clint knows it's her. Because he pulls his mask off the hood down and turns away. Is it it scent? Is it the sound of her footsteps or is it scent? I think she must use like a specific uh, like deodorant or perfume or soap or shampoo or conditioner or something that he just immediately can recognize. Which, by the way, (laughs) another red flag to go along with the fact that she is wearing... (laughs) A arrow necklace. I'll just say, oh if God. you can recognize someone by scent, recognize by scent from twenty feet away, yeah, and she's rain. wearing a, a necklace that represents you. I have questions. I've I have yeah. questions. Some catch up coming later for Clint and his wife. You know, how'd you get the soul stone? Well, I had to, you know. Soul for soul, so I had to sacrifice the one I love. Right, right. Uh, oh, how did you and yeah. Nat reconnect again? I, I yeah. just identified her by scent in the blood-strewn streets of Tokyo. <laughs> how are your five Let me years? get this straight. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You had to sacrifice someone you love. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's it was like a, it's like a, platon, you know, it's like a friend love. Yeah, it's a beautiful friendship. A friend, you know, a beautiful friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Nat and Clint have a little chat. She brings them in back to Avengers HQ, where the time machine is ready for a test run. Barton, all too happy to volunteer. And in this test run, he goes back to his farm before the snap. He glimpses his family, comes back with the baseball mitt in hand, America's pastime. Going strong on the Barton farm. The machine works. Hot dogs and mayonnaise (laughs) and cracker jacks. I don't care if Clint ever comes back. Uh, (laughs) With a limited supply of pim particles, folks, Mm. the team has to brainstorm and figure out just the right plan for them to travel back to the past in the most efficient way. Get the stones, bring them back to the year 2023, uh-huh. where they can undo Thanos' snap. And eventually a plan emerges. Thanks to Nat for figuring out the New York wrinkle in this. Yes. Everyone else fucking asleep on the job. Downing asleep. Ben and Jerry's. Fucking uh, Bruce is going, Bleaker. Bleaker and Sullivan. <laughs> Three teams who travel to New York, Asgard, Morag, and Vormir to bring back the stones. To NYC we go, 2012. Yes. What a memory. It's so good to see Frank Grillo again. (laughs) Frankie Grills, baby. 
The fight against the Chitauri is winding down. Tony, Cap, Scott go for the Space Stone and the Mind Stone, the Tesseract and the Scepter in the same place. Bruce, meanwhile, heads down to the Sanctum. Bleaker! For the Dime Stone. <laughs> Asgard 2013, Thor and Rocket place. make for the Ether, otherwise known as the Reality Stone, on the very day that Frigga, Thor's mother, Brutal. will die. But Thor, Ooh. an absolute emotional wreck, and returning to a fateful day in his history. That's right. Just can't continue. And he wanders off, leaving Rocket to try and accomplish the mission alone. Well, he's not alone. He has that, you know, cutting room floor footage of Natalie Portman from Dark World that they reconstituted <laughs> for this. So that's nice. <laughs> it's one of the clunkers in the movie where you're just like, what? And well, it's just, it's, I mean, there's so, so many people in the movie that something like that just really yeah. stands out. <laughs> to Morag, 2014. Rhodey and Nebula. What a pair. Incredible pair. Lion Wait, Peter Quill. <laughs> and access to the Power Stone. Amazing sequence where they watch him singing some Redbone. So he's an idiot. Yes. After dropping them off, Nat and Clint head to Vormir. In pursuit of the Soul Stone. Time for a little chat with our old pal, Red Skull. Nebula issues a warning to Rhodey. I have to say one that probably should have come up earlier during yes, the collective thank you for that. group planning thank you. stages. We had an extensive <gasps> planning session. It seemed to go for multiple fucking days. I think you could kind of drop the note, <laughs> P.S., my past self my past sister Gamora and yeah, our dad Thanos are definitely looking for the stones at that particular time. Stone hunting. Gotta Just bring it note. up. Just have to. Please. Come on. Because maybe then we switch up the assignments like Nebula goes somewhere. Like, come on. <laughs> Could have sent Nebula to New York. Oh, God. On 2014, Thanos' ship, speaking of... 2014, Nebula's brainwaves become entangled with future Nebulas, allowing Thanos, <laughs> with the aid naturally of Ebony Maw, Ebby himself, yeah, right. to learn about the Avengers Sire. and the future. What a sequence. I mean, I guess we have to buy this, but do this we? This is a tougher sell for me than the time heist, I have to be honest. It's fine. I know that Nebula's brain is a computer, but... Turn the Wi-Fi off when you're going into the past for Neb. <laughs> yeah, go into airplane like, just mode, it, Nebula. Come on. Just go into airplane <laughs> mode. Turn off auto updates. Unplug the Wi-Fi dongle. And just <laughs> don't let this happen. <laughs> oh. In New York, Cap gets a hold of the Scepter, winning a fight against his past self and Ooh. ogling his own butt cheeks in the process. Who can blame him? Who among us? The Ancient One gives Banner the Time Stone Ooh. freely after learning that Doctor Strange willingly gives the stone to Thanos in her future. But a mishap, which, uh, let me just say, avoidable. You understand that Banner turns into the Hulk because he gets angry. Why are you antagonizing him? Let him take the fucking elevator, right? Why are we just, like, being a dick to him? He just helped save the world. You couldn't have done it without him. 
he told you that it's because of anger and that he's always angry. And they're just like, yeah, take the stairs, bitch. See, my note is, you know exactly the scenario you're heading into. You know all of the people at play. You know Matthew Barry's going to be there. You know Loki's (laughs) going to be there. You have got to have eyes on Loki at all times. There's just no excuse. Eyes on Loki at all times fucking times. Thor is standing there and thank God because a little tap to the old chest plate (laughs) revives Tony. Spark of Mjolnir's lightning. But there is no excuse for not watching Loki in a scenario where multiple Infinity Stones are in flux. There should be eyes on Loki at all times. The fact that people aren't like there's not three shield guys just watching his every move. Is They're doing such crazy. a bad job keeping an eye out that you'd almost think Heimdall were in charge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, listen, it's not for nothing, but as Guardians, y'all have to handle your business a little better because it's just spilling over into everyone else's business and it's bad. Anyway. Anyway. Slight mishap in 2012 allows Loki to grab the space zone and escape to a Disney Plus show coming to you soon. On Friday nights, this May. (laughs) On Asgard, Thor speaks to Frigga. Beautiful, beautiful sequence. So moving and sad. She knows that this is not her Thor. Gives him a much-needed pep talk. Speaking some real truth about the nature, not of godliness, not of hero work, but of humanity. It's beautiful. It really is. I love that scene. Meanwhile, Rocket manages to extract the ether, the reality stone, from Jane Foster, Thor, in a really incredible moment, right on the precipice of their departure. And after internalizing his mother's words, sticks out his hand. Sometimes it takes a while, Jay, but Mjolnir comes to him. He is worthy, and that is really the boost he needs. He and Rocket return to the present. On Morag, Rhodey KOs Quill, who <laughs> just flat doesn't see a guy in six and a half feet of black armor <laughs> standing close enough to knock him out, but that's fine. Not the toughest look for Quill in the movie, though. That'll come later when Gamora's like, this guy? <laughs> Yikes. That, like, not only, and then he, and then absolutely stomps his nuts. Anyway, Rhodes <laughs> and Nebula rather easily take possession of the Power Stone, but then, before Nebula can return with Rhodey to the present, mm-hmm. she falls in agony as her brainwaves once again through Wi-Fi become entangled with her past self and Thanos beams up her ship and captures her. 2014 Nebula, still allied with Thanos, prepares to impersonate her future self. Peeling the golden head plates off her own skull. It was weirdly gruesome. Really something there from Nebula. How do I look? To find the space stone again, Cap and Tony, in really an amazing sequence, go back to Jersey, the Garden State, 1970. They have to trust each other. Because two things are in the same place, the Tesseract (laughs) and more him particles. And they're heading to a familiar site where Steve began his super soldier training. Tony, on the time heist, has a run-in with his father, Howard Stark. 
Ew. <laughs> and this is an, uh, an amazing, amazing stretch of the movie. Beautiful time between Tony, who yeah. calls himself Howard because he's so nervous, and his father. Real closure for Tony, real healing. However, <laughs> we would be remiss not to mention. It's concerning. <laughs> That when Howard Stark stumbles into Tony's midst, he is rather concerningly looking for Arnim Zola. Yeah, that's very, it's not a great look. Is anybody seeing the head uh, Hydra guy in charge? Just looking for him. <gasps> very serious to talk about with him. Howard. Howard and Tony talk. They talk about family. They talk about children. They talk about life. Tony, who manages to very easily retrieve the Tesseract, just a little laser beam, mm -hmm. and then it's his. And Cap manages to raid Hank Pym's lab for particles. Amazing shot of the old Ant-Man helmet. And how, you might ask, did Steve get Hank out of the lab, called him to mention a glowing, suspicious package, and it will surprise nobody to hear that Hank Pym was a total fucking asshole. Isn't that He's your a job? Asshole. <laughs> what a fucking, what a piece of shit Hank Pym is. On the way out, Steve has a heart-wrenching encounter of his own. Seeks shelter in what he thinks is a random office, but a heart-wrenching encounter of his own! <laughs> He sees, <laughs> though somehow she does not see him through the clear it's, pane of it's glass. A, it's okay. He sees the love of his life, Peggy Carter. Beautiful moment. I feel bad making fun of it because it is such a beautiful moment, one of my favorite in the film, but it's just a, a, a plate of glass with mini blinds that are open. I don't understand how she doesn't see him. Maybe she does and it's part of the long con because he was the secret husband all along. I don't believe in the secret house, but that's also fine. <laughs> we'll couldn't they there. have, couldn't Cap have just like written like on a piece of paper somewhere like Zola equals Hydra <laughs> and then like slipped it into her, into like one of her manila folders mm -hmm. or something? Like I feel, it's just so weird to think like, well, <laughs> they're there watching them actively work with Hydra unbeknownst to Peggy and Howard working with Nazis Listen. and then just to leave and not say anything. Despite, Everything that Bruce taught them and us about how yes, if you go into the past, it becomes your future, yada, yada, yada. You know, they can't meddle. Can't interfere right. or didn't think to. And they're going to restore everything, though they don't know that there. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. <laughs> Leave a note. Uh, when do they go back and mention... Do they just not mention, oh, by the way, Loki got away with the, Loki got away with the Tesseract in the past and we had to go to 1970? Yeah, we, we missed that debrief when they all caught up. Yeah. <laughs> P.S. Um, meanwhile, on Vormir, Clint and Nat argue over who gets to give their life for the Soul Stone. Nat wins despite Clint's significant head start in leaping off the cliff. Mm -hmm. Wails for Natasha, the Black Widow, the love of Clint's life. Wails for Nat. I don't feel so good. We'll miss you until the release of Black Widow. The Avengers minus Natasha 
And with 2014 Nebula in 2023 Nebula's place, I'd like to think that if one of the primary Avengers had been subbed out, someone would have noticed. But 2014 Nebula escapes notice entirely. They return to the present with all of the stones. Tony, channeling Obadiah Stane's spirit, makes some upgrades of his own. A nano gauntlet to hold the gems. And we have a volunteer, folks. Bruce Banner, wielding the glove. It's got to be him, Jay. Gamma. It's got to be me. It's like he was made for it. It's Gamma. (sighs) Snaps. And it works. He brings back everybody Thanos eliminated. Clint's phone rings. It's his wife. Everybody looks out the windows. But, da-da-da! At the moment of triumph, 2014 Nebula in the other room, nobody any the wiser, blast doors down, no one checks where Nebula is, has opened the gateway to bring 2014 Thanos and his army into the present. And Thanos wastes no time at all. He unleashes a barrage of fire, utterly destroying the base, but leaving every single living being inside of said base miraculously unharmed. (laughs) I mean, step up your game, man. You can't, that's just like a absolute brick of a fucking massive aerial strike from Thanos. Just a brick. On Thanos' ship, Gamora switches sides, frees 2023 Nebula outside Thor, Cap, shockingly wielding Mjolnir. Not really that super shockingly. Iconic moment, though. Amazing. Iconic moment. I knew it! And Tony Stark take on Thanos. But the Mad Titan is too strong, and with only a little bit of static, a little bit of trouble, Cap gives him makes him sweat a little bit. The Thanos beats them all down and absolutely shreds Cap's shield down to half of its size. Such an amazing sequence. Oh my God. I love, 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 love Tony, Cap, and Thor. Really the three most consequential figures in the opening era of the MCU teaming up there against the primary villain of the Infinity Saga. So cool. Thanos calls down his army. But before he can go in for the kill, backup arrives in the form of... Is that everyone's music? Almost everyone. Yeah. Very, very, very few people do not come out of the portal. We miss you, Luis. Tough beat for Hank and Jan, a couple other people, but almost everyone. The Avengers, on your left, on your left. The Wakandans, the Asgardians, the Guardians of the Galaxy, the Masters of the Mystic Arts. Everyone has returned to the fight. I'll never forget seeing this for the first time. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, it was just so thrilling. Absolutely one of the most electric moments in in in-person movie-going history. It's like the place sounded like it was launching into space. Yeah. That's so fucking good. And somehow everybody gets their moment in this sequence. The comic book splash page come to life. In the big fight, Carol destroys Thanos' ship And then, Doc Strange holding up the one. Tony gets the stones from Thanos. 
Thanos snapping? Nothing. Nada. Tony, though, he snaps. The mad titan and all of his forces disappear. No whales this time. You don't get it twice. You don't get two fucking whales. Sorry. Corvus Glaive getting speared through the guts. Fucking Ebony Maw dusted twice by Peter Parker and co. You got the one. Be happy with the one and move on. That's right. I think that's more than fair. Tony, he deserves all of our attention and all of our whales here. Yes. Mortally wounded. After not only snapping, but closing the book on a decade of the MCU with the iconic words, I am Iron Man, passes away. As Pepper tells him he can rest, and all of his friends, Peter there, Rhodey there, Cap'n, Thor, watching, look on. Isaac, give us the loudest whales. Whales around the world. <laughs> Just like he would want. For Tony Stark, he is Iron Man. I don't feel so good. Oh, I love how the only stinger in this film is the sound of Tony hammering, building his suit back in Iron Man. What a beautiful tribute. The world celebrates the Avengers' victory and the return of the disappeared. The Avengers and nearly everyone we've met through phases one through three attends Tony's funeral. Some notable, some notable attendees include Nick Fury. Okay. Maria Hill. Great. Harley from Iron Man 3. Okay. Absolutely amazing. I love this. Real record scratch here, though. Secretary Thunderbolt fucking Ross, who has spent multiple movies and phases two and three hunting basically everybody that is at this funeral and now is here to pay his respects. Get the fuck out of here, buddy. How Sorry, dare it doesn't work he? that way. How dare, Honestly, how dare you? The fucking gall. How dare you? It's insane. And we know from WandaVision that the Sokovia Accords are still in force. They're still being enforced yep. by the world. And yet here you are not keeping that same energy of hunting down these fugitives and just acting like everything's fine now. No, it doesn't work like that. You're Pick a side, man. <laughs> never expect Un anything from Thunderbolt real. Ross and you'll never be disappointed. Except you always will be because he's the fucking worst. Remember when you picked him as your winner for The Incredible Hulk? He did win at that moment. Unbelievable. And I'm sorry about that. Well, it's it just shows you, he's like, it's like the Justice typical like, white man who just fails upward and fails. This guy is going to be president one day. It's like unfucking real. Thor hands responsibility of ruling new Asgard to Valkyrie and leaves the planet with the Guardians of the Galaxy. We all know who's in charge. Hulk has caught up Cap on what needs to happen to preserve the timelines. Every stone needs to go back to the exact moment, the exact place from which the Avengers took it. Steve bids farewell to Sam and Bucky in a uh, suspiciously final fashion. And instead of returning when he's supposed to, Cap arrives at the meeting point, in the present, as an old man, wedding ring on hand, having stayed in the past and spent his life with Peggy. 
unbelievable stuff that we will discuss at length (laughs) over the next two episodes. He passes the shield to Sam. Incredible moment. Where did that shield come from? Who knows? But an incredible moment. And then the camera pans to Steve and Peggy at long last sharing their dance. And in the mid-credits stinger that exists only in our minds, it pans again to Steve and Peggy to the fucking at last. Fucking furiously. After a long, long last. How can he bear it? Oh, God. Anyway. That's America's dick. (laughs) I mean, you have to figure that super soldier erection is just like tearing through those slacks as they're dancing closely together, right? It's just like... Busting the seams, like oh cap God. bursting through doors in Winter Soldier. <laughs> Jason. Yes. Everybody wants a happy ending, right? But it doesn't always roll that way. Maybe this time. I'm hoping that if you play this back, it's in celebration. <laughs> And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the Mm. arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is hope. Let's talk about this incredible Capstone Films development. Mm. It was released in April 2019. Gosh, I remember it well. What a weekend in our lives. Really amazing. This was the same week as season eight, episode three, The Long Night, The Battle of Winterfell. Woo! Absolutely huge. <laughs> what a stretch for the Binge Road crew. My God. The 10th film in the phase three MCU, the penultimate film in the Infinity Saga, the fourth film in the Avengers franchise, it is the longest movie in the MCU by... A fucking mile. I remember when they announced the running time. And people were just like, wait, what are they going to do? Like, how can it be that long? Yeah. How can it be three hours and one minute? How? Yeah. I don't have the the slacks in front of me, but I feel sure that in Ringer movie slack, Amanda Dobbins said, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. I was delighted when I saw the runtime. I'm sure it'll shock everyone to hear. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're in the tank, okay? I was stroking my chin and nodding. I wouldn't mean this was happening. Listen, I used to get, like, I used to walk to the mall to buy Marvel Comics as a child. Guess what? It's hard for me to be reasonable about this. Iconic quote from the New Yorker's Anthony Lane, who you'd be shocked to learn, did not really like the film. Quote, the one thing you need to know about Avengers Endgame is that it runs for a little over three hours and that you can easily duck out during the middle hour, do some shopping, and slip back into your seat for the climax. You won't have missed a thing. Come on. Anthony. <laughs> frankly, that's not tr- fucking true, <laughs> my guy. Oh, my God. That is an absolutely hilarious quote. Anthony Lane yeah, never disappoints. On, that is hysterical. If you missed it the, that's the middle hour of this movie— You'd be absolutely lost. This isn't Russian arc or something, man. Like, like you can leave for the last hour of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I love that movie. There's a lot of things that happen in that middle hour. Come on, Anthony. Lane. I gotta say, How dare you? I was actually really anxious 
heading into the movie about needing to take a bathroom break and missing something crucial. Like I was really, I was like, I cannot get out of my seat because I don't want to miss even a minute of it. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about our memories of seeing the film for the first time. Spoiler alert, I saw this movie with Sean Fantasy and Mm -hmm. he did take a bathroom break. In fact, the one scene that he missed was Bruce Banner and the Ancient One talking about what happens if you move a stone and don't replace it and the offshoots in the timeline. And that was a pretty bad thing to miss in terms of comprehending yeah, the tough time waste. It's tough to miss. Tough to miss. How about the creative team for the film, Jay? Familiar crew. Yes. Produced by Kevin Feige. Ever heard of him? Ever heard of him, folks? Directed by the Russo brothers, Joe and Anthony. Written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. As we have mentioned many times, this is the same team that made Winter Soldier, that made Civil War, that made Infinity War together. What a run for this crew. Really? Honestly, I'm not sure we talk about it enough. Unbelievable to have made Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame together. Wild. Pretty good, folks. They shot Endgame and Infinity War Back to back. Imagine. Back to back. The old Lord of the Rings, you know? The old Lord of the Rings. The old Lord (laughs) of the Rings strategy. It was a great, I mean, it was a, you had to do it. Hairstyles, you got to keep everything copacetic. You got to keep that momentum going. It's also just, it's, the cast is so star-studded. So many people, like, it's impossible to even dream of coordinating that many schedules more than once. In fact... These movies were actually supposed to be filled in tandem, not just back-to-back, but at the same time. Obviously, that proved quite complex prohibitively. A lot of changes along the way. Had to figure it out. Had to get it right. What about the cast? Well, uh, just about all of our Infinity Saga pals, uh, the special end credits. Man, it really hit me. As an ode to the original Avengers at the end of it, with the specialized, like the glamour shot with the with the autograph it was really like wow it felt final it felt really i've spent like over 10 years of my life watching these movies it's insane it was really moving uh the music alan silvestri returning for the score and doing a fine job i might say on this that Mm. said it is kind of like all the hits from the previous movies that it's all the best bits from all the previous movies that he had scored, plus all the best bits from some of the individual films that he did not score. So I know that I've been tough on Alan Silvestri over the course of this pod, but good job on this one, I think. He had previously scored Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers, and the Avengers Infinity War. And he took the weight of this film seriously and knew how much it would mean to the audiences. He told The Hollywood Reporter's Byron Burton, quote, my hope is that they tear up. Successful. Mission accomplished, man. These are long-term relationships between the audience and these characters. People have grown up with Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. I hope that tears come during the sad moments, as well as the victorious and the heartwarming ones. Mission accomplished, my guy. Other composers' scores from other films, as noted above, were also featured where those characters were involved. Michael Giacchino's Doctor Strange score, Pinar Toprak's Captain Marvel score, bam, 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 bam—that's a good one. And the soundtrack features drops that are new to Endgame. Traffics, dear Mister Fantasy, as exceptional a skeletal and starving Tony 
in orbit somewhere between Titan and Earth. Kink's supersonic rocket ship where when Hulk and uh, Rocket arrive in Tonsberg. And some like Redbone's uh, Come and Get Your Love that help us center around a certain set of characters and take us back Mm -hmm. through the time heist and prior films. A really appropriate mix of new music, music you recognize, and some pop music to set the scene. What about Rotten Tomatoes and that special tomato meter? Tomato meter, your fave. (laughs) Just so much care and so much effort and love have gone into the tomato meter. What does the tomato meter say? (laughs) Oh, the tomato meter. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oracle of our times, the tomato meter is. Certified fresh, buddy. Hell hell yeah. (laughs) 94% among critics. 90% among audience members. I almost had to reverse uh, the opposite response to this as I did with Infinity War, where when I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes numbers for Infinity War, I thought, man, that's quite a bit lower than what I was anticipating Mm -hmm. seeing for the critic score in here. I'm like, man, I just remember people spending more time complaining about certain things in the movie. But I think that the through line for a lot of this is, you know, we're going to talk in a few minutes about, for example, does the time base make sense? Does it matter? You can... Pick all the nits you want. What Endgame was able to achieve was sensational and astounding. And it really resonated with an extraordinary number of people. And another place that you can see that is the box office. That's right. Endgame in a real clear example of how the movie industry has changed. It is among the most expensive movies ever made. Reported budget of $356 million. But in the age of comic book movies, that's an absolutely fine investment. In fact, a drop in the bucket compared to the returns box office, $858.4 million domestically. These are numbers that, like, even 10 years ago, even five years ago, really, would just be absurd. We're absurd at the time, to be fair. $1.94 billion internationally. $1.94 billion, $2 billion international. Amazing. $2.8 billion globally. Holy fucking believable. It's amazing. Unreal. It made, and this is the really, really shocking part of it. Now, to be fair, opening weekend in the age of the blockbuster has shifted earlier and earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. You can go... You know, Wednesday night at midnight. Wednesday yeah. night at midnight, and it counts for the weekend. Okay, so there's some like accounting hijinks that have been going on, not just for this movie, but for movies for the last ten years. That said, <laughs> 1.2 billion opening weekend is That's fucking unbelievable. crazy. It's really it doesn't make sense. That a is global wild. event, much yeah. like Thanos' snap. This was a global event. <laughs> Uh, it's not only the highest-grossing MCU movie, the highest-grossing Marvel movie, the highest-grossing superhero movie. It's the highest-grossing movie of all time, period, point blank. That's it. Now, you can say adjusted for inflation, gone with the wind, still kicking ass. Fine. It's the highest-grossing movie of all time. Those numbers are unbelievable. They never cease to amaze. That's so much. It is absolutely shocking. And I think to myself, like, imagine being some mid-level exec at, like, Sony or Warner Brothers or somewhere else around town where you've got, you know, you've got these other comic book properties and you're just trying to 
figure out how to do it, but in do it in a different way that establishes your brand separately from Marvel. And then these returns start rolling in and you see it and you're just like, it's like Thanos with the gems. Like, how do you compete? No with greater this? force in the universe. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. What do you do? Think about that for scale and like a, a point of relativity. Let's remember what Disney acquired Marvel for. Yeah. $4 billion. This yeah. one movie made $2.8 billion. And we're not done. We're not anywhere finished. Oh, my God. We're just at the beginning of the next phase of this beautiful adventure. It's truly, this is not to say that it supplants Star Wars, but it is in terms of a, a cultural event that mm-hmm. captures the imagination of a massive audience that cuts across age and other social factors. It is the Star Wars-like event of our time. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the wake of Thrones when there was so much talk about yeah. monoculture and the, the mm-hmm. death of monoculture and losing that. I mean, Marvel is... They've locked it up boy. for the foreseeable future, monoculture. Marvel is still the, the thing that replicates the water cooler experience better than anything else that's happening right now. I mean, to such a dominating extent that their competitors, ostensibly, you know, Sony with Spider-Man, Fox with, with the X-Men, just kind of said, Say, hey, make it for us. Yeah. You do it. We'll take a cut. Yep. Please, you Absolutely. just do it. That is unprecedented stuff. That is really shocking stuff. I know. It's amazing. We've talked about this a lot through the course of the run. You know, moments like Guardians, Ant-Man, these new inflection points, these uh, evolutions and steps of the Marvel formula, further proof of concept, what can't they do? And it's so funny because I don't think anybody in the in the wake of Endgame, the wake of the conclusion of the Infinity Saga was seriously saying, oh, will Phase 4 work? Like, of course Phase 4 right. was going to work. Of course Phase right. 4 was going to yeah. generate an astounding amount of excitement and joy and anticipation. And, you know, there was no new Marvel in 2020, as we've mentioned previously in the run, that was the first time since 2009 that there was no new Marvel, no no new MCU. Obviously, that was because of the theatrical delays, the pandemic, et cetera. But when it became clear that WandaVision would be the thing that Phase 4 dawned with, there was a lot of, and not to like introduce the straw man, we'll get back into Endgame in a second, but it's it's all kind of a piece with this conversation of the, of the, the force that Endgame was and the force that the MCU was and still is. Oh, is WandaVision going to be the thing that animates the public discourse? Are enough people going to be interested in those characters? It looks so weird. Will this parody of the sitcom work? How <laughs> will it connect to the larger universe? You Guess literally were, were a handful of weeks. You can't go on yeah. Twitter during the day on Friday because if yes. you haven't seen the episode This yet, Friday, I, I was on there and I saw a tweet from someone that said, hey, maybe don't tweet a spoiler from the show that many people haven't seen yet. And I just closed it. And I <laughs> I tweeted, I will not be on here for the rest of the day until I see WandaVision. And I just right. closed it and I left. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's buzzing about it. Everybody wants to share the thing together. And that is, of course, one of the things, as is so often the case with the stories that we talk about here on Binge Mode and fantasy stories and, and superhero stories, comic book stories, whatever the case may be, it's not just how thrilling it is to experience it on your own. It's how you get to share it with other people. And especially yeah. right now, I think it's something that people are really, really like the draw that you have to it is almost magnetic. But before we get to phase four, we have more endgame to discuss. That's We're right. going to go through some big picture questions, some conversation starters, 
Again, in part two, we'll go character by character through the plot, the thematic arcs for all of our heroes. We're going to keep it kind of casual here today as our, our primer pod. And we'll start where else with how you felt about it. Do you like the movie? Well, listen, yes. First of all, <laughs> short answer, yes. <gasps> what if you just said no? <laughs> I know, that would be fucking Imagine. shocking, right? Just to quickly uh, touch back to those numbers, those incredible box office numbers, and Anthony Lane's review, I, I remember the one thing that really stood out to me about the response to the movie was this very particular kind of fear. Fear is strong, but like an anxiety from certain critical circles. I think, you know, Anthony Lane is, is among them, is, I think is kind of representative. And this is not to like single him out for his taste or anyone else, but like a, a, a kind of anxiety of, is this just what movies are going to be like now for the foreseeable sure. future? I, yeah. I think the answer is for yes. Sure. And I feel bad for people who don't enjoy these type of movies. That said, do I like this movie? Yeah. I, I, I loved it. It's like, it again, I've said this many times over the course of this podcast, this whole experience, all of these movies, has been the thing that I've been waiting for since I was a, a kid that would walk to the comic book store on Wednesday and get my pull list and spend, like, all of my allowance on comics. So to see it unfold in the way that it did and to share the energy, the really, like, unbelievable energy. A, a kind of energy that like formerly I would have imagined experiencing like at a concert or at a mm -hmm. at a sporting event, you know, where it's like the star player enters the game kind of thing. When when people are showing up on the screen, it's like these roars would echo through the movie theater. It was just incredible. I loved the movie. I loved spending time with these characters. I am endlessly in awe of the real confidence with which Feige and Marvel have gone about depicting these characters. I was on a Twitch stream recently and was talking to some people and, and one of the people in the chat was like, I, but the thing about the Avengers is like Cap's costume is kind of lame. And I'm like, yeah, it's lame, but that's the point is his costume in the comics is lame. That's the mm -hmm. point. That's what makes it right. good. His costume in the comics is lame. He's walking around with a flag on his chest little wings on the sides of his head, the kind of like goofy, floppy red boots. Part of the Marvel formula is Feige and the people that made these movies were able to say, okay, that's lame, but you know what? There's a, generations of fans that love that. That's what right. that character is to them. So let's just translate that. And they did. And, that's part, and the confidence in the character's being themselves, allowing the characters to be, uh, you know, what they've evolved into and over the course of the decades that they appeared in the comics is part of why it worked and why it really just, like, absolutely hit me in my chest. I loved this movie. What about you? Boy, I love that so much. That really, that was really touching. That, that costume point is so great because what else does that achieve? You look at a character like Captain America who... You've spent a decade of your life watching in this form after, to your point, maybe you've spent decades prior reading, investing in. And you have moments along the way where you watch what the Americana in which he's adorned, how what that means to him has changed in yeah. real time and how he's grappling with that and processing it. You know, what does it mean if the person who has become a symbol for so many other people 
no longer believes in the thing on his chest and has to work to find his way to back to that in a completely different fashion. What does it mean if Tony Stark, the futurist, the futurist, the futurist is here, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. He knows all. He knows what's best for you. <laughs> has to stop and ask himself, is this the moment where I don't try to solve right. it? Is this the moment where I don't try to build the thing or crack the code or figure out a way forward, always forward, no matter what? You know, not to call Stannis on you. We march to victory or we march to defeat, but we go forward, only forward. And every detail like that in the MCU is designed to reinforce for the characters who they are and what they've been through and for us to remind us that we've been through it with them. And that is why I love this movie. I, yeah. I love this movie. I have to say, I've always loved the movie. The first time I saw it, I loved it. I think then in subsequent viewings, you have the kind of natural experience of the, the emotion, the shock, the awe, the first experience of just processing it all and everything hitting you. You say, all right, let me like think about the quantum physics of it all, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but I have always just adored Endgame despite the parts of it that don't completely track or make a ton of sense to me. And as we've chronicled at length over the course of our podcasting journey together, I think we're both like this. You know, the rules of the universe have to make sense in a fantasy story. You mm -hmm. create the rules, you obey them. And I don't know, it just, the magic of the movie is so forceful and the feeling of, frankly, gratitude for yeah. the culmination of this part of this journey is so colossal that I just move pretty quickly past the parts of it that make me pause and say, hmm, does that make sense? You know, the two viewings that I've enjoyed the most, I think, are the first one and then watching mm -hmm. it for, for binge for this because there's something so special about the recognition of that shared decade of the MCU yeah. together. That was what floored me. Like, I felt like I'd been hit by Mjolnir the first time I saw it. The time heist is a journey through the MCU. You know, it's like we're flipping through the pages of a scrapbook together. The amount of callbacks, successful callbacks, is astounding. And they're never, well, some of them are like laid out with a spotlight on them. So you know that that's what they're doing. But there's yeah. so many others that are just let, uh, they just pass by like very casually. And it's only if you have been really paying attention to these movies that they pay off so wonderfully. It, it really, yeah. it, it, Scrapbook is a great way to put it. It's just like a wonderful time and time again to see these callbacks to these moments that you've had throughout these movies. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially like right now, spending all this time in the last few months talking about these movies and these characters and thinking about them, the amount of time that we have, you just feel so deeply, deeply attached and invested in who they are and what their lives are like and what's going to happen to them. And I'm not going to surprise you or anyone here. Like I, I was like sobbing when Tony died, <laughs> sobbing. Yeah. And I was sobbing when Cap got his dance with Peggy and on and on the list goes. But I think the, the fact that it is, first of all, like a, a real challenge to execute. You know, so many characters, yeah. so many plot lines, so That's many high-level mechanics. The degree, of difficulty, the degree yeah. of difficulty is incredible. 
And so many loops you have to close. So many loops. Much like the, fir- the first Marvel's The Avengers, you know, I, I left the theater thinking uh, of Endgame. That was so great. And also, like, two orders of magnitude better than it actually needed to be for me to think it was good. Yeah, totally. Exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. That's exactly right. And there are so many moments that I think honor the character's journeys to that point and the mm-hmm. time, again, that you as the viewer have, have spent with them. And it just feels like a really special acknowledgement of what it means to love these stories and these characters. You know, we talked in our first Iron Man pod, it's fitting to go back to that moment, much like this movie does, and think about where we started. And we talked in, in that very first pod of the Benjamin Marvel run about how you know, one of the reasons I, I love these movies in the MCU so much is because I feel like they they align very, very much with, in essence, like a, a change in my life, right? Iron Man came out in 2008. Yeah. That's when I graduated college. It came out. Same. Right around my graduation. And I just associate these movies with that first decade of the rest of my life. And it just felt like, it really did feel like a chapter was ending, but also that one of the things that the the people who made this movie and everyone who's made the MCU what it is understands so fully is that part of the beauty of that story and that journey is that you can you can always open up that cover again. You can always fall back into it and rediscover what you loved about it the first time. That's just a very special thing. It really is. You know, we t- we've talked a lot about stakes recently on this mm-hmm. pod, Infinity yep. War in particular, and I think it's true that death is in a sense, cheaper than it is in other kinds of storytelling. But, you know, I was struck watching Endgame, which, honestly, I've I've seen so many times during quarantine. I find myself, like many people, I think, going back to the things that just, like, bring me comfort and joy. And I've, yeah. I've watched <laughs> Avengers Endgame, I don't know, 10 times, 12 times, like, over the course of, of quarantine, not counting, like, even just for binge. And I think <laughs> one of the things that strikes me every time I watch it is how how the things that mattered to these characters, how the things that happened to these characters, I should say, actually mattered in the end. Thor is not the same character that he yes. was in Thor 1, Thor the Dark World, or Ragnarok. Cap is not the same character that he was. Not like, all. all of these characters, Nat is not the same character. They've all been through stuff. And you really feel it when you see them, like, when you see Nat sitting there uh, trying to manage a world that is spun completely out of control with the tattered threads of the Avengers, you know immediately what she's going through because you watched it happen. And yes. They don't need to say much more. And that's really powerful, and that really, really hits. And that's a kind of storytelling, again, that, like, I never thought I would see adapted for the movies in such a loyal way as it has been, where you just kind of let these things unfold episodically. And the momentum builds to the point where you just get to a a level of intimacy with a character where you just understand what they're going through. And 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 the actor has to do really very little. And the and the writers have to do very little exposition to just hit you in your feelings. It's an amazing experience to see Marvel in these kind of masterful hands. They're just, the people that make these movies and now TV shows are so unfathomably good at what they are doing. It's actually incredible. That's a good point. I think, I think again, of that moment in Jersey in the 70s mm-hmm. where Cap sees Peggy and 
every single thing that you need to understand about what he's feeling and what he's thinking is in, innately a part of of your perception. This, it's like the second it unfolds, he just, he has that half of a second of, of anguish on his face, of the deepest longing. And you know, without even having to think about it, your brain and your heart just organically process every event in his life that has led to that feeling of complete... Yeah desperate yearning to be with somebody he loves and once again having to put that on hold so that he could go help other people and it's, it's just it's incredible do you remember seeing it for the first time do you remember what oh the experience God, yeah. of seeing it for the first time was like what's your memory of that it was great so i had booked my tickets like uh, like a week and a half in advance uh as you noted we had episode three we knew that was going to be uh winterfell the battle of winterfell God. at a certain point like we were pretty sure about it by the runtime and by other things. We were mere days away from sitting in the office together, watching live on Sunday night and shouting, can someone brighten the TV? <laughs> what is it? Why is it so <laughs> dark? What is happening? It's so dark. And so I went, I, usually uh, I would have gone midnight, but I just, I ended up going during the day, which mm-hmm. didn't matter because it was still packed out. And while there were clearly people there who I think had seen it for the, probably the second time, there was also just like a tremendous amount of energy in the theater. And it was like, woof. Like, again, when you when your uh, friends are showing up on the screen, it, it was like a tremendous rush. I can remember particularly the really big, exciting, crowd-exploding moments were Cap picking up Mjolnir, the portals yeah. was like unbelievable. She's got help. It was really like a one of a kind theater experience. And that's even grading it on the scale of, you know, seeing Marvel's The Avengers live in the theater, seeing Winter Soldier live in the theater. This was, it was, the energy was, was truly unreal. And to the, to the point made above, like it, you really got the sense that there were people like who had grown up with these. There were a lot of kids that were like, yeah. You know, like what three when like uh, Iron Man came out? So this is was huge for them, and th- the yeah. energy in the theater was just like an incredible thing to experience. As I admitted on this show, one of the nerdiest things that I do is I will occasionally just watch the entire uh, Marvel's Endgame crowd reaction video that is on YouTube, whatever the most popular yeah. one is, and I'll just sit there and and try and get a contact high off of those cheers. It was amazing. What was it like when you went? Those reaction videos are so fun. Cram dropped uh, a great thread on Twitter, which I think is also in a compilation on YouTube, maybe even the same one from, uh, from Scott Gustin. And yeah. each moment and the absolute roar of yeah. shock, ah! of euphoria, of joy, of elation. An incredible thing to scroll through those because you feel like you're able to relive it a little bit for the for the first time. And that, of course, is one of the, the great tricks of the best yeah. MCU movies is that every time you exactly. revisit them, they give you that thrill because you're not only exactly. experiencing the rush of seeing it in front of your face in that moment, but you remember, you remember that adrenaline of seeing it for the first time. I saw this movie, as mentioned, mere moments ago with Sean Fantasy. We went to a screening, actually. Oh, wow. I saw this on the Disney lot out in Burbank. And <laughs> I will actually never forget walking in. And the whole screen was a version of the movie poster. <laughs> this will sound mean. I don't, I don't mean it to. 
I just have such a vivid, vivid memory of this. I looked at it and I turned to Sean and I said, I think we're going to get a lot of nebula because she was so prominent <laughs> in the poster. And I was like, oh no, is that? Well, facts, I mean, those are absolutely No, she facts. did a nebula, but is that, what we, is that what we want here? I just wanted the time with the, the characters we spent a decade with. And of course, <laughs> not knowing when the snapped characters would return, but knowing, knowing, of course, that they would. Just, there had been so much talk about who would die. Would Tony die? Would Cap die? A real certainty, I think, among fans that one, if not both of them, would. And every minute of it was just unbelievable to watch. So The true. screams, the cheers, the tears, the gasps. It was an incredible theater experience. One of my, one of my favorite and really one of the ones that has stuck with me the most over the years. I just loved the movie so much and felt such a strong emotional response to it, even by my usual standard. I really was just, I really was just blown away by it. And, and so simultaneously sad that that chapter of the MCU was over and also really yeah. grateful, just real, honestly really grateful for, for having experienced it. And I guess that gets us to our next conversation point about the run-up to the movie, because that's, I think, inextricable from the experience of watching it is what the anticipation was like, that fever pitch. Oh, man heading into it. Like, how did your anticipation and the eagerness that you felt to see the film pair for you with that element of of sadness over the fact that this chapter was concluding? Like, what was that balance like for you? Well, honestly, in the like most of these movies, the excitement way overpowered the sadness initially mm-hmm. because... Part of that excitement was just kind of like a desperate anxiety to avoid spoilers, which is yeah. part and parcel to uh, being yeah. alive at the, in this era of, <laughs> of no, but popular you're right, culture. Though. Spoiler paranoia was, I, I think, yes. it reached a different kind of apex with Endgame. A different kind of apex. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna. St- I, I had to like unsubscribe from like certain Reddit forums. <laughs> I was very wow. careful about my internet usage, like I, especially because this was concurrent with Game of Thrones, right? So right. a thing that I had, a strategy I had hit on was during that period, which stretched several weeks, I would only check responses from verifieds because I figured that was least likely to get me spoiled. Yeah. So that anxiety, anticipation, and excitement really just pushed out any kind of sadness that I had about the film. I was just terribly, terribly excited. I could not wait to see how the Avengers get out of this one. And, (laughs) you know, I I just really could not wait. I could not wait to get in the theater. I didn't want to know how it happened. And then it was only afterwards that I was like, oh, man, I really want to run it back with Cap. I want to run it back with Chris Evans. I, I would love to run it back with RDJ. Like, let's do it again. And But it, it felt appropriate that those characters were leaving the scene. And listen, old Captain America is the thing that happens in the comics. He still stays in the fight uh, in different ways. But it was like, wow, that was... You can't help but look back and think... Where was I when I saw Iron Man in the theater? Like, where was I in my life? You know, where I remember seeing Marvel's The Avengers in in New York City in Times Square. What was I doing at that particular time? That's when, after leaving the theater, um, when you start to think about all that, that's when it it really, I won't say sad, but it definitely got 
it's like looking at a yearbook again, like to your to your point. Yeah. You just can't help but thinking about where you've been with these characters. It's a real it's a real relationship in a, in a in an actual Absolutely. tangible way that you have with these characters. Like they become your friends. No, I I completely agree. I, I like the way in that respect that the the filmmakers and the writers talk about the idea of fan service around yeah. the movie because this attachment, this attachment that people have to the characters, to the story, is I think so sincere and so deeply felt for people. And like, look, if you had not seen every prior Marvel movie, maybe you saw Endgame and enjoyed it, and that would be wonderful. But obviously it was primarily made for the people who had been there for much of the journey along the way. There's this McFeely quote from a, a New York Times interview that Marcus and McFeely did with Dave Itzkoff of the New York Times. And it's specifically about a Captain America plot point, but I, I think it, it makes the larger point well about how they thought about this and what people would be waiting for and hoping for. Quote, from the very first outline, we knew he was going to get his dance. On a separate subject, I started to lose my barometer on what was just fan service and what was good for the character. Because I think it's good for the characters. But we also just gave you what you wanted. Is that good? I don't know, but I'll tell you, it's satisfying. He's postponed yeah. a life in order to fulfill his duty. That's why I didn't think we were ever going to kill him. It's amazing. Because that's not his arc. The arc is, I finally get to put my shield down because I've earned that. Like, that makes me really emotional reading that and thinking about that because I think that's what you, again, sort of like instinctively feel yeah. when you're watching Cap in that moment. It's just, oh my God, he really earned that. And when you watch Tony snap and say, I am Iron Man, and you know everything that led to him making that choice and the sacrifice that he made, but also the peace that he would have found knowing that he had finally achieved the thing that he set out every day to do, which was protect the people that he loved. Yeah. That's just an incredible thing. And one of the things that I think is fun now to look back on and, and, and reflect on is like the, the trailers. Because again, to your point about spoilers— the way the movie was marketed, the way the movie was teased was uh, singular is probably overstating it, but specific and pretty unique. Everybody knew the characters who were snapped in Infinity War were going to come back. We yeah. talked about that a lot yeah. in our Infinity War pod. Of course. That's not even a bad They're coming thing. back. It's just true. Yeah. Of course. Right? Spider-Man is coming back, folks. Right. Black Panther is coming back. But they <laughs> couldn't show that in the trailer. Right. And so, in a way, the necessary restraint, I think actually really heightened this sense of, oh my God, I'm about to maybe say goodbye to these people I love so deeply because everything hinged on the original Avengers in the run-up. The trailers, you know, first of all, we didn't know the movie was called Endgame until the first trailer right. dropped. So weird to think about. So strange now to think back on. December 2018, first trailer, Avengers Endgame. Holy shit, we're in the Endgame now. That up there, that's the Endgame. The strange quote, the Tony quote. Both of the trailers that came out were so Tony-heavy. I mean, the first trailer is two and a half minutes, and the first full minute is Tony. And it's not just Tony. Like, the Harbingers are overt. His line, part of the journey is the end, is in the trailer. That's just, like, brewed in a lab to tug at the heartstrings, right? The old footage in the second trailer, the shots from the old movies, yeah. it was this, like, deliberate montage and homage to this this shared experience. And then like the end, the A 
the Avengers logo reforming out of the ash. Again, I think little things like that that signaled the inevitability. You know, Thanos isn't the only thing that's inevitable, right? The inevitability of this return, but that like kind of reminded you that despite the fact that that was the plot and what the plot was going to orient itself around, that wasn't actually totally the point. The point was this time that you had spent with all of these characters and what was going to happen to them and how that was going to feel for you and for them. And it was just, it was, a, it was just an amazing thing. Scott Lang's reveal, that was actually in the trailer. That was one of the only things that was actually like revealed. Oh, Scott's back from the quantum realm. Listen, I devoured the trailers. At the same time, as we've talked about here and in many other, uh, on many other podcasts, movie studios, and in particular Disney-owned ones when it comes to their properties like Star Wars and Marvel, et cetera, have just become so good at showing trailers that like have so many fake-outs that give you the energy, but also contain scenes that are different versions of scenes that appear in the movie, different cuts, so that it, it actually, while you get the vibe of what is happening in that scene in that little snippet. It's completely different than the actual scene that unfolds or giving you deleted material. So you, it, it actually spoils very little. So yeah. I devoured them and, and, and you know, in, in a Kabbalah-like fashion, analyze them while knowing I'm not going to learn anything from these. I'm going to learn nothing from these trailers because they've just <laughs> become too good at making them now. I love that. That's great. I, I I do remember with this with the Scott thing specifically, knowing that he was going to be back from the quantum realm. Like there were so many theories. Will it be the astral dimension and you know the mystic arts? Will time travel yeah. play a role? Will it be the quantum realm? And when as soon as Scott comes comes into play at the end of that trailer, it's like okay, it's it's going to be the quantum realm. But again, that didn't really diminish anything. It did not diminish any. I mean, there was a fantastic, listen, as soon as Infinity War ended, there was a fantastic amount of speculation about, like, how do they get him back? Yeah. Um, and then Ant-Man and the Wasp, fantastic amount of speculation. How do we get him back? We talked about in, in that movie how many thought that, oh, uh, Hulk uh, will go to the quantum realm and uh, he'll meet Jarella and that'll be part of the- but Ant-Man will fly up Thanos' butt and then get big again. <laughs> Popular theory. One of the thing, really, a really popular theory. Again, it's a thing oh that God. I think happens in the Ultimate Universe, not to Thanos. But I think you know, <laughs> one of the most interesting aspects of this was that the Spider-Man Far From Home had been announced. Yes, of course, Peter Parker was snapped in Infinity War, yeah. and then uh, Kevin Feige had to do this kind kind of kabuki theater thing, yeah. where he's pretending like he's not sure where the when the movie takes place. I love this. Uh, in an interview <gasps> with Gizmodo's Jermaine Lucier in June 2018, he says, "Quote: Well, when does that movie take place? We know it's the summer. I think it's summer vacation. I think he's going to Europe with his friends. I don't know what's summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do know." <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things, you know, that's, again, one of the complaints that people have is, oh, no stakes, we know they're coming back, blah, blah, blah. But that, again, this is this kind of storytelling, and either that's your bag or it's not, but serialized storytelling, particularly from the uh, comics, is structured in a very particular way to Stanley, you know, Stanley has that famous quote, it's the illusion of change. You know, you feel Mm -hmm. like the characters are going Mm -hmm. through something, but they're really not. When I think, I think that's a little more cynical than what actually happens, but to an extent, it's true. You're going to be with these characters for a long, long time. I remember, you know, I stopped reading comics for, I don't know, eight years or something, and then I went back to it, and I started with uh, 
Astonishing X-Men, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. And it was just, I remember from the first couple pages, like how great it felt to be like, oh, there they are, and they're still doing the same thing. And look, it's Wolverine, and he's still feuding with Scott. That's so great. I love that they're still there doing that. It's amazing. I I think, again, we talked about this in in Infinity where I won't harp on it, but to that point of stakes, like, I don't know, you'll just never, not not you, you, you some theoretical person will never be able to convince me that the permanence of death is the only stake and the only thing in life that can impact you and leave a mark. Like, uh, knowing uh, Feige's (laughs) best efforts and interviews and subterfuge aside, that Peter Parker would be coming back, that Far From Home was going to be the continuation of Peter Parker's journey and that much of the continuation of the MCU would hinge on Peter Parker, Spider-Man, the single most popular Marvel character does not in any, any way diminish for me a moment you talked about on the Infinity War pod, and we'll talk about more in our next episode. Tony lands, and he falls into Cap's arms, and he says, I lost the kid. Like, yeah, it's brutal. It just, it just kills you. back, yeah, it does not change the way that that shreds your fucking heart, right? Yeah. Or the way it feels when Peter is, like, clawing at Tony's chest as he's watching him yes. die. Or the way that he has to process the simultaneous burden and blessing of inheriting Tony's mantle, literally in the form of Edith, expectations, the pressure that other people have, the way that that loss and the mural of of Iron Man's helmet on, on the side of the building as Peter sits there and far from home. All of those things leave an indelible mark on who these characters are. You know, the Thor reveal in Endgame is played, in a sense, for laughs, but he is in desperate straits. He's in a completely new place with the remnants of the people that he was supposed to protect and lead, right? In a completely different and humbled situation from their uh, previous circumstances. He has failed in, in every conceivable measure, and he's just drowning his depression in a drink and food. He is a broken person who every time he looks in the window, out the window, just thinks, I've failed every single person out there. Right. How can I even right. go outside? I mean, that those are stakes. Those are huge stakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. In order to preserve some of those plot points, this is a fun little fact here. Almost none of the actors got the script. This which, is wild, honestly. I love the, the Russos did an interview with Rotten Tomatoes where they said that only Robert Downey Jr. got the entire script. And then they kind of said, oh, Chris Evans might have, which is really <laughs> funny. <laughs> you almost can't find a Russo Brothers interview from around this time where they don't go out of their way to specifically say Tom Holland cannot be trusted with plot points. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> But it's one of those things where you say, oh, you, you, you read stuff like that and you think, is this like apocryphal, right? How real is this? So Don Cheadle did an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Anthony Bereskin, 2019, and confirmed it. He said, quote, you just sort of get your part and some explanation about what came before and what goes after and kind of how things fit in. Absolutely cannot Amazing. give Tom Holland a script. You cannot give Gwyneth Paltrow a whole script. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow, she shows up on oh, a day Gwyneth. and then you give her one page and say this is what you're doing. <laughs> before you know it, she's giving interviews a year before Endgame about Pepper and Tony having a baby. But don't ask her if she was in Homecoming, folks. <laughs> 
this oh, led to God. some really fun surprises from the cast. Like the genuine shock among them, like the audience experienced of the five-year time jump, as Christopher Marcus told Hollywood reporter's Aaron Couch. This was a long-standing Feigl. Quote, he sees the value in breaking the toys. He was always pressing for a good-sized time jump and to make it permanent. Do it. We'll deal with it, and it'll just make it more interesting. Why would you undo it and go back to zero? If we went back five years and undid it, that's five and a half hours of a movie that sort of have no point. You loop back around to the beginning, and it never happened. I mean, great point, and I think that obviously worked out just as he intended. Is this uh, the most shocking pop culture time jump? You know, that's a great question. I was gobsmacked when it happened. Like, I gasped, as I mentioned. Me it was it was yeah. really shocking. I feel like it can't be, but it might be. Like, I'm really racking my brain to think of another one right now that was as surprising. And, you know, specifically for these type of movies, to be truly shocked yeah. is hard. And I, was, sho- and I yeah. was shocked by that. I was truly but you're pro. surprised. You're, you're yeah. pro time jump? I, I'm pro time jump. I think that, that it, was, it was clearly the way to do it. There's no world in which after the devastating L that they took <laughs> in the garden, you know, yes, they killed Thanos, but obviously they're not getting everybody back. Man, that you're they describing them just, like the Knicks. Yeah, the devastating well, loss they took I'm in just the saying, garden. You're, not leaping, you're not leaping back into how do we, <sighs> there's a whole world to take care of that's in tatters. Right. And I just think that, that it would be very, very hard to believe that they would then just leap to okay, let's figure out how to get everyone back. Not only that, but you got to kind of like fast forward some character development with all of them. You got to see them um, when we come back from that five-year jump in a different form. And that was really moving, you know? I'm pro. What yeah. about you? I'm pro too. I think the only the only thing I get hung up on is as we've been discussing, I love the character so much and I'm so invested in them that I kind of don't want to miss a minute. Yeah. You know? And I, I find myself thinking, it's just like a, a more high-profile version of a lot of what we've talked about along the way. Like when Cap and Sam and Nat are on the run, what is every minute of their life like? So I just yeah. want to know when every minute of their lives were like in that time. But the flip side of that is really, to the film's credit, it's what we were talking about a few moments ago. The fact that you feel like you didn't miss that time, it feels like very, very reminiscent to me of, okay, so... I'm not good at keeping in touch with people. I'll pan sure. back here for a second, right? I'm, in fact, horrible at it. <laughs> but some of the friendships that I cherish the most in my life are the ones where no matter how much time has passed, no matter how long it's been since we've had a conversation, since we've heard about each other's lives, you feel like you didn't miss that time at all. You feel like you could just pick it up right away and be exactly where you were. That's what this felt like to me too, right? And so that's just an incredible thing and an incredible achievement, and I love it. I think for me, it's probably my third favorite time jump in pop culture history. Spoiler warning for, I can't really say what it's a spoiler warning for without spoiling that time jumps happen in those things. I apologize if you're mad. Battlestar Galactica, season two, shocking stuff. I'll never forget it. And of course, the flash forward reveal in Lost. Astounding. And then this. I think that's the top three. 
I would so I would say I would agree with you. I'd say Endgame one, Battlestar two, and then the five year time jump that George R. R. Martin spent three and a half <laughs> years trying to work into oh, a Song of God. Ice and Fire before totally scrapping it before it didn't work. That's my third favorite George. and third most impactful time jump. Incredible stuff from you. <laughs> Back to the MCU. It is, uh, again, not much time has passed. Like, Endgame came out in 2019. It's the beginning of 2021 right now. It does feel like so long ago already. And it it is kind of amazing to think back to how the future of the MCU was discussed around the time of Infinity War and Endgame. Like, very, very, very few Phase 4 details had been announced and locked in the run-up to Endgame. So... Subsequently, very recently, yeah. in recent weeks and months, we had a Fantastic Four film announced. Yes. We're in the midst of the first season of WandaVision, which, spoiler here. Wow. For episode five specifically. Talk about this for just a minute. We won't get too derailed, but the on-ramp for the X-Men. Well, listen, I think the choice to use Evan Peters, who played Quicksilver in the X-Men movies, and not Aaron Taylor Johnson, who played Quicksilver, the much maligned by my co-host Quicksilver in the uh, Age of Ultron movie, um, I think is... is a, Just don't run into the bullets, Pietro. I think it was done very specifically. Now... You know, there's been a lot of speculation about how mutants in the X-Men might come to this world. And I think that it's, I think it's absolutely reasonable to assume that one of the ways it could happen, considering the reveal that we had in episode five, is some kind of merging of dimensions where, Mm. you know, Feige Mm. famously, when he brought Spider-Man in, the idea was, we're not doing an origin story. All that stuff happened. He's here now, right? In some form or fashion, that stuff happened. Ben happened. Uncle Ben happened. All the adventures happened, right? I think it's fair to assume that something like that is on the table vis-a-vis the X-Men, that that at least some of those adventures that happened in the Fox movies occurred and that we're going to get those characters with those fictional histories, maybe played by the same actors, just Mm. come right into the MCU. That is a super tantalizing possibility. I love the line, oh, we they recast Pietro. Oh, my God. I mean, it's... Incredible it's, shit from Darcy. So I think there's two, you know, so I think that there's two possibilities. Three, really. One, a merging of dimensions caused by Wanda, who is, at this point, clearly immensely powerful. Her power was ramping up all through Infinity War and Endgame, notice that... She has Thanos beat until the missiles come down as a distraction. In she has him beat, and they call that out in WandaVision. Yes. Monica is yep. talking about that with the director of S.W.O.R.D., that she was going to win. So uh, clearly she is tremendously powerful now and has the ability to, in some way, alter reality. You know, she's created two children that are seemingly alive and brought her husband back to life. So it's not beyond comprehension that she would have caused some kind of merging of of reality dimensions. The second option is because of the energies that she is releasing or what has happened to the people that enter into this energy sphere, she's powering them up and creating mutants. So, spoiler, Monica Rambeau in the comics is one of the characters that it takes on the moniker Captain Marvel. She has these, like, 
energy powers where she can transform into light, into neutrinos, and just kind of like flash at the speed of light across the galaxy. When she is x-rayed at the beginning of episode five, they have trouble like getting a reading on her. You just see a glow. Has she been powered up by being inside the, the hex? Possibly. So maybe... Maybe one is also creating mutants. And then the third possibility is some combination of those two, right? The dimension smashing together, we get Pietro, and also the people inside the hex or close to it or affected by that, their uh, mutant genes are awakened and they develop powers. All in all, just really, really fascinating. I, like, I'm not sure that they truly know where they're going with it yet. Like, it's possible that they don't really know, but... I can't wait to see where it goes. I, it's truly fascinating stuff. I can't believe it. I know. And it, it's, oh my God. Wow. Now I'm hyped and just want to go <laughs> drop all the episodes of the rest of WandaVision, please. I just want to go binge them. Good Lord. But that really heightens what we're talking about because there's so much left to be discovered just in that one show. And yeah. then you look at the wider MCU universe face form beyond. There's a, Adam B. Very had a tweet last week, February 1st, quote, Today's announcement that Ryan Coogler is developing a Disney Plus series set in Wakanda brings the total number of Marvel Studios titles in the works to 26. 26! That's that's unbelievable! And then, of course, none of that, none of the new stuff that's on the works happening right now or or set to come, makes saying goodbye to Tony or Nat or Vision or any of these characters, Young Gap... (laughs) Yeah. Any easier. And it's not like there was ever really a doubt that more MCU stories would would come and would come in droves, of, of course. But it is just kind of amazing to pause and think for a minute about how quickly all of that developed, how quickly that landscape shifted to, to everything that's ahead. And I think in some ways, honestly, it just heightens that feeling that the Infinity Saga was a moment in time. Time heist. Yes. We need a time heist of our own to, to catch up oh here. God. So again, we'll, we'll go quickly. <laughs> Does the time heist work for you as the central plot device? We don't yeah. need to go into every single wormhole of the quantum mechanics. Broadly speaking, does it make sense enough for you to buy into this as the central propulsive force of the plot of the movie? I cannot express to you the amount of absolutely cockamamie comic book plots that I have read and sat through and been broadly (laughs) satisfied with over the course of my story reading and consuming (laughs) life. This, the time heist, was one, certainly like above replacement level cockamamie comic book plot. It was better (laughs) than that. Like it, it was absolutely a thing that they would have done in the comics And what elevated it in terms of quality and why it worked for me was, as we said before, they just studded it with all these wonderful callbacks that paid you off if you had watched these movies basically as a reward for paying close attention. And so in that sense, it it absolutely worked for me. And again, like I— I've read the X-Men comics for years in which Jean Grey died and then came back as a clone who didn't know she was a clone of Jean Grey, but then it was revealed that she was. Like, it's, forget about it. Like, this worked. It worked for me. It absolutely (laughs) did. And it was cleverly executed. What about for you? Yeah, you know, I think that they work hard to simultaneously establish the rules of the way they are going to 
enact time travel and also mm-hmm. to not get too hung up on it ultimately. You know, That's the core logic is that they use the quantum realm to go through time, go back to get the stones, not to use them in the past to try to change what happened, but to bring them back to the future to use those stones to return the snapped people, which will be Hulk's role, and then to defeat Thanos, Tony's role. They say quite clearly that they cannot change the past. Hulk has that explanation when you go to the past becomes your future. They say and establish quite clearly via the Ancient Ones exchange with Banner that they create new timelines, branches, offshoots of their reality when they remove the stones and that because of that, they need to go back to those exact moments from which they remove the stones, which will be Cap's role at the end, to replace them and restore the timelines again. Not Loki's, but even so. So... I think that on the first viewing, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to track. After that, when you're able to like hang with every step a bit, a little bit more, you're not confused, but that's when the nitpicking part of your brain kind of activates, right? I think that the, again, they get credit for trying to solve it. There are a tremendous amount of nits to pick. Let's not, uh, I I don't want to make it seem like, yes, I am accepting this hook, line, and sinker, and I don't have many, 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 many questions. There are so many questions, but... Again, coming from a comics book backward, one of the fun things that I understand will happen as we get more shows, Mm -hmm. as we get more movies, will, those nits will absolutely be picked and explored. We're going to get answers to a lot of those questions in some form or fashion in ways that I think will surprise. That's part of the fun. Yeah, I I think that's a crucial point. Also, I think it helps that the movie is kind of in on the joke, right? Like you have yes, the so sequence with so. Rhodey and Scott listing off all of the, the movies from pop culture that feature time travel plots. There's that hilarious Scott line. So Back to the Future is a bunch of bullshit after Hulk's <laughs> explanation. All of that stuff is, all of those winks to the audience are, are pretty important and, and really do land. Of course, yes, once you start to get into the nitpicks, the list becomes pretty long pretty quickly. If Loki used the Tesseract to escape and open the new timeline, then they couldn't put the Space Stone back in 2012. So what does that mean for the primary timeline, for reality, for the new timeline? Cap's Hail Hydra Whisperer. They can put the stones back all they want. He still whispers Hail Hydra to Jasper Sitwell. Does that not change Winter Soldier? Gamora and Nebula coming out of their timeline on and on the list goes like, is all of that just fine? Because as Hulk says, they're not changing the past. They're setting a new future. Is it new dimensions, new timelines? You know, we're we're, we're actually going to save the Peggy Cap dance debate and whether he was always the husband or whether it's a new timeline for the next episode because there's so much to talk about there, including the fact that the directors and the writers have said completely different things, totally contradictory he's things the, about he's how not they the husband. do that, which is amazing. <laughs> oh my God. So our colleague, Ben Lindbergh, interviewed a quantum physicist in the wake of the film, <laughs> which I love, <laughs> asked him... If any of the time travel made sense, here are some sample quotes from Scott Aronson, professor of computer science at the University of Texas, founding director of UT's Quantum Information Center. Quote, we know those other movies are bullshit, Marvel seems to be saying. This movie is different from those movies, so this movie must not be bullshit. But another possibility exists. They can both be bullshit. After viewing Endgame's time travel scenes, Aronson concludes (laughs) that that's the case, saying, 
quote, as I predicted slash feared, the quantum realm is invoked here basically just as a magical amulet to enable time travel. Aronson would uh, later say to Ben in the piece, quote, quantum mechanics, as it's been conventionally understood for the past 93 years, in no way whatsoever involves time travel into the past. Indeed, it's sometimes been remarked that for all of quantum mechanics' revolutionary implications, time is ironically one of the few concepts that it didn't change at all. In standard quantum mechanics, that is without relativity, time is just a continuous parameter that flows at the same rate everywhere in the universe, exactly like it was for Isaac Newton. But wait, Anson also said to Ben, quote, What's true is that there have been decades of speculation about whether the merger of quantum mechanics with general relativity into a still unknown theory of quantum gravity might allow for time travel into the past. Pro, the genius of it, time travel nitpicks aside, is that it was a trip back through a decade of our shared experiences. I mean, that's really what it was all about. It was a trip back through the yearbook, through a scrapbook of our memories spending time with these characters. That's why it worked. Yeah. I think often of... Of the scene from Looper where where Bruce Willis is explaining to himself, listen, if we try to yes. uh, unravel time travel, we'll just be sitting here with, with straw wrappers as diagrams <laughs> and we won't have gotten anywhere. Yeah, I do think, I mean, the, the compulsion is, the instinct is there to, to pick it apart and, and try to make sense of it all and try to find the holes. I think it is notable that us and so many other Endgame viewers are ultimately willing to say, does it all completely hold up? No, of course not, but that's okay because it not only brought everybody back, it took us back through that history of the MCU, being back in New York in 2012, being on Morag in 2014, Asgard in 2013, the 70s with Howard and Hank, on and on. I mean, what a gift. Really, what a gift. I have a question for you. Yes. If you had to go on a time heist mission, you're part of the crew. Mm -hmm. You're prepping. You've got your time suit. You've got your pimp particles. Yeah. Which time ice mission would you have wanted to go on? I've got the Ant-Man suit. I'd do the Chitauri one. Just to be fun to watch that happen from a different perspective. If I have the suit, that's the one I'd go on. All the rest of them are. I do not want to go to Morag. Terrible I do not want to be anywhere near uh, Thanos or like with the possibility of, of falling into his clutches. Obviously, Vormir fucking sucks. Vormir last the, on the list, for sure. Absolutely yeah. You're either last. dead or losing a cherished Red companion. Skull, one of the toughest hangs around. So it's going to be <laughs> New York for me. 1970, I think. Yeah. Listen, you want to talk about nits that we're picking, like, I guess Tony could have, like, somehow nanoparticled his... 70s outfit, but like the, there's also the question of like, how do you go back? If you went back, how do you pay for things? I would have to source money from 1970 or earlier. It just feels like it would be too much trouble. Send me back to New York during the Chitari, where at least I've got stuff around where I, if I wanted to go, uh, you know, have a shawarma, I could make it work. Yeah. Nice. What about you? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I picked New York as well. I was. Asgard in 2013 would be kind of nice, actually. That would have yeah, been a but fun you know one. what's you know what's about to happen that day, and it's too crazy. Bad stuff everywhere, though. You know. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, well, the, the Chitauri thing is about to be reason. over. It's about to end. <laughs> it's about to be finished. I laugh every time Bruce arrives at the Sanctum to get the Time Stone, and we see we see the Ancient One <laughs> activating. <laughs> the spells from the roof. It's like, okay, we get it. You participated in the Battle of New York. You defended Earth. It's so funny. I would pick New York as well. Character pairings. 
certainly yes. on display in New York and throughout the film. And again, we'll talk about this quite a bit in part two, but quickly here, because we talked about this so much in Infinity War and this is the bookend, that balance, really key once again. Does the the alchemy of it work for you as well in, in, in Endgame as it did in Infinity War in terms of which characters are with whom, what the pairings are, what the groupings are? Oh yeah, even more so, I think, because because it was in the wake of a defeat instead of a run-up to a battle, mostly the whole time, you know, there was just like a lot more time for relationships to breathe. You got all these really wonderful, quiet, more quiet scenes with Nebula and Tony, with Cap and Nat. Great one. So for me, the pairings in this movie were just better because of that space and that ability for characters to work through more kind of like emotional terrain rather than be ramping up for the big fight all the time. You know, it was like, there's MacGuffin stuff, but it's like not as pressing MacGuffin stuff, especially because Thanos comes out of nowhere to uh, ambush our heroes, basically. So I really prefer the, the pairings in this movie. What about you? Well, on that point, the Thanos factor, that's worth talking about for a minute because it's it's up there on the list of of shocks that we were talking about earlier. It is stunning when they kill Thanos so early in the film, you know, our yes. timeline, original Thanos. And it's interesting to read about how big of a piece of the puzzle that was for the writers as they were crafting the story. There's a, in that aforementioned New York Times interview that Marcus and McFeely did with David Scoff in 2019, they talk about that, that breakthrough of landing on killing him so early and how that opened up basically the rest of the plot. McFeely said, quote, we always had this problem. The guy has the ultimate weapon. He can see it coming. It's ridiculous. We were just banging our heads for weeks. And at some point, Trin Tran, the executive producer on the film, went, can we just kill him? And we all went, it's what so happens if you just kill him? Why would you kill him? Why would he let you kill him? That is an amazing quote. Why would he let you kill him? And then Marcus continues in the interview, quote, it reinforced Thanos' agenda. He was done. Not to make him too Christ-like, but it was like, if I've got to die, I can die now. So to pull that off, and then the trick of finding him in 2014 and bringing him back into the story that way so that the presence of Thanos could still be there, present throughout. But the original Thanos, the nature of that threat, that loop had been closed, but in a way that did not provide closure. It just became another source of, of regret and grief that ultimately fueled the, the journey to, to come. Really amazing. I think also the surprise of how long it took the snapped characters to come back is, is worth yeah. talking about here for a minute. I mean, again, completely fitting. Definitely the right choice, not only Absolutely. because it let characters who weren't in the Infinity War like Hawkeye, like Ant-Man, get their time here, but because it gave the bulk of the time to the original Avengers, the, the characters that so much of the Infinity Saga had hinged on, the characters that broadly we were saying goodbye to here. And you know that Doctor Strange, Falcon, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, obviously with Black Panther and Chadwick Boseman's death, that has specifically changed. But with yeah. these characters, you knew that future films, future shows were going to center on them and that they were going to have a lot more moments with us and us with them. This was about saying goodbye. Okay, we have a lot more to cover. All of the character arcs, much more about Thor and everybody else. What happens to people who snapped back, who blipped back and were 
midair in an airplane, mid-coitus, on and on the list goes. We'll talk about that <laughs> next time. The six, our winner, come back for part two. But first, come back for a story because it's sanctum time, folks. Jason? Yes. Binge mode? Assemble. <laughs> because it's time to gather the masters of the mystic arts. Head to the sanctum sanctorum of your choosing. Tell us everything we need to know about the comics inspiration for Avengers Endgame and the history of Marvel Comics crossover events. In our Avengers Infinity War podcast, I talked about how Thanos Quest and the Infinity Gauntlet were inspirations for Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Today, let's talk about the influence of Jonathan Hickman's run on New Avengers leading into his Marvel crossover event, Infinity, also an influence on both films, which ran from August to November of 2013 and spanned a core six-issue series with tie-ins to numerous titles, including New Avengers, Mighty Avengers, Captain Marvel, Guardians of the Galaxy, Nova, Wolverine, and the X-Men, and several others. Jonathan Hickman's work in comics is built around big ideas. His stories spring from structural clashes, collisions of nations, collisions of kingdoms, collisions of ideologies, collisions of actual physical collisions of universes. While his versions of characters can come off occasionally as a little cold, his storylines have an absolutely epic scope. Hickman's New Avengers centers around the Illuminati, a secret cabal initially made up of Professor X, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Reed Richards, King Blackbolt of the Inhumans, and Namor the Submariner, these all-men, very noticeably all-men, who take it upon themselves to secretly steer events within the superhero community and on Earth. T'Challa the Black Panther would eventually join the group along with Steve Rogers and Hank McCoy, a.k.a. The Beast, replacing Charles Xavier after his death in Avengers vs. X-Men event. The onset of events called incursions places these men at the lever of a trolley problem with just unimaginably massive stakes. For reasons unknown, the multiverse is collapsing, causing universes to collide and destroy each other. The collision point between universes is always Earth. And working in secret to meet the threat, the Illuminati collect the Infinity Stones, assemble the Infinity Gauntlet, and then Captain America, the most moral among them, is chosen to wield the glove to throw back the invading Earth and hopefully halt or at least pause the incursions while they can figure out what's going on. And it works for a little while, but the forces at play are titanic and they that stones end up being smashed and all of existence is laid vulnerable to the next collision and they're happening much like Battlestar Galactica. Hmm. happening every few minutes or hours all the time. But secretly, one gem would remain hidden. Now, heated debate amongst the Illuminati ensues. What are we going to do? What are we going to have to do in order to protect our universe? They ultimately decide that until a permanent solution can be found, they're going to have to do whatever needs to be done to protect the 616 universe, up to and including the wholesale destruction of other Earths. Captain America, as one would expect, is like, we're not doing that. We can't do that. So the Illuminati wipe his memory of all knowledge of the cabal and the incursions, and they send him on his way. Then two massive events happen simultaneously, and this is the lead into infinity. Thanos invades Earth, and an ancient race called the Builders threatens the entire universe with extinction. 
Thanos has spent the last several years of comics fictional history leading up to this conquering planets, demanding from these planets and territories tributes. And that tribute always takes the same form. They have to call basically all their kids and deliver their heads to Thanos. Meanwhile, the builders have been wiping out entire star systems and to escape their wrath, alien refuges have been quietly sneaking into Earth space, laying low and hoping that uh, this famed planet Terran with all of its enhanced humans can somehow protect them from the wrath of this invading alien force. Thanos sends the Black Order to Earth just as he does in Infinity War to discover the hiding place of the last remaining gem. And they do that by targeting the known members of the Illuminati, who, though they've managed to keep their existence secret from the superhero community on Earth, is known throughout space. The Skrulls knew it before the secret invasion, and Thanos knows it now. As in the film, Ebony Maw strikes Bleaker, 177A, Bleaker, Bleaker and Sullivan, and Doctor Strange. Uh, the Black Dwarf <laughs> is the comics version of Colobsidian, strikes at Wakanda, just as in the movie. And then Proxima Midnight moves against Atlantis and Corvus Glaive and Supergiant. First move against the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning and then move on to Adelan, the capital city of the Inhumans, which at the time was... a floating above the Manhattan skyline. Ma manages to implant like a darkness into Doctor Strange, which unbeknownst to him influences his actions and surveils his thoughts. Proxima Midnight, in what is one of the best subplots of the whole thing, finds Atlantis decimated. At the time, Wakanda and Atlantis were at war, the result of Namor flooding Wakanda during the events of Avengers versus X-Men. Shuri was the queen at this time. T'Challa was acting as King of the Dead, which he was named by Bast. He retained, however, his Black Panther armor, regalia, and abilities, but he didn't run the government. Shuri was doing that at the time. And he was also playing a dangerous game because, of course, he's working in the Illuminati, which Namor is a part of, while their nations were actively at war. So their relationship would have to be kept top, top, top secret. Now, as the incursion crisis worsened, Namor approached T'Challa with a, a really generous peace offer for Shuri and was like, hey, tell her generous terms. Let's call this whole thing off. Enough people have died. Shuri allowed Namor to believe that Wakanda would accept. But in fact, while Namor was in Wakanda meeting with T'Challa and the Illuminati, Shuri was launching a devastating strike against Atlantis, which destroyed the city, killed much of the population. And when Proxima Midnight arrives on the scene, it's right after this devastating attack. And Namor is amongst the ruins looking at the appalling loss of life. And Proxima Midnight, of course, her mission was to do whatever it takes to find the, the whereabouts of the last remaining gem and to kill Namor, but she finds Namor barely worth murdering. And of course, Namor now has a card to play. He bends the knee in exchange for his life so it seems, and the lives of what remained of Atlantis. And he gives up the location, he says, of the last gem. Where do I send all the armies of Thanos, Proxima asks. And what else is Namor going to say? A place called Wakanda. Now, the gem is not there, but he's taking his revenge. In Adelan, Thanos, through Glaive, demands of the Inhumans the same thing that he's been asking all throughout the universe, which is the heads of all the Inhuman children. Thanos is, of course, famous for his obsession with death and his various genocidal schemes throughout comics history. So this seems like classic Thanos, right? But in reality, it was an elaborate and bloody ruse to cover for the fact that he wanted to murder just one person 
who is named Thane, and it's Thanos' secret son, who is one of the Inhumans. Meanwhile— Hiding a child. Hiding a child. The searching for the the heads of a bunch of children sounds more like a Yondo move, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Yondo. In space, uh, resistance to the Builders— falls to the Avengers, led by Captain America, Captain Marvel, Thor, alongside an alliance of various worlds, including remnants of the Shire Empire, led by Gladiator of the Shire Imperial Guard, the surviving uh, remnants of the Skrull Empire, led by the Skrull warlord, Clert, and the Kree, led by Ronan the Accuser, Oh, and also Spark, the Spartax Empire, led by the absolutely oily, arrogant, and super dickish Jason of Spartax, Peter Quill's dad. In the comics, I won't spoil the climax here, but the space battles are just super, super epic. Thor has one of the greatest moments, I think, in recent comics memory, and it's just great. Just as Cap and Thor are making their victory toasts because they've thrown back the threat of the Builders and united the galaxy under the banner of the Avengers, not in a conquering way, but because everyone's inspired by their courage, they get word that Earth has fallen to Thanos, and they rush back along with a galactic alliance army of Skrulls, Kree, and Shi'ar, all who are just so grateful for the Avengers' sacrifice and for their efforts. Now. Let's talk about crossovers for a second here. All art is the result of a negotiation between creativity and economics on some level. That's not the way we like to think about art. We like to think about art as as pure expression of human passion, of yearning, not as, as product. And generally speaking, art that is overly concerned with being product, with economic concerns, with brand management, often is boring and lacks a feeling of danger, all of which is to say it usually sucks. The age of IP has made that relationship overt, Mm -hmm. but it's always been there. It's always existed. Michelangelo carved the David, not because he was moved to carve the David, but because Florence's Guild of Wool Merchants, then responsible for the decoration of the city's cathedral, hired him to do it. It was work for hire. The David being work for hire doesn't at all dim its brilliance or diminish its importance as an iconic touchstone of human creativity and culture. Nor, I'm being very clear here, would I seek to place Avengers Endgame or comic book movies in general on the same level as timeless (laughs) Renaissance art, right? If there's a burning building with the David and Avengers Endgame in it, I'm going to rush in and save the David, even though Avengers Endgame means more to my life, okay? (laughs) All I'm saying here is... The comics crossover, a story arc that involves two or more individual titles, is a response to the economic incentives, particular to the comics industry and serialized storytelling in general, just as all art is a response to the economic context from which it arose. Now, Marvel's first true crossover was uh, the Avengers-Defenders War, which began with September 1973's Avengers 115 and ended with December 1973's Defenders number 11. In traditional superhero comic style, the two teams spent the first act of the tale fighting each other over a MacGuffin before joining forces against the true bad guys, in this case, Loki and Dormammu. The idea... Underpinning this event is pretty obvious to all of us. Use the popularity of an established title, Avengers, to promote a new title, Defenders. Marvel's next crossover was its first 
involving industry rivals DC Comics, 1976's Superman vs. Amazing Spider-Man, The Battle of the Century, is a fascinating example of what happens when the economics-creativity relationship is too focused on dollars. In an interview in the 2006 book, uh, The Krypton Companion, veteran comics writer Jerry Conway says, quote, there was no rational way we were going to justify this team-up. I mean, in what universe? On what world did it take place? To which the interviewer, Michael Urie, responds, quote, some fans said it took place on Earth money. <laughs> or Earth dollar <laughs> sign, excuse me. Quote, Marvel and DC's crossover was going to be oversized, eight times the price of a regular comic, and heavily promoted a guaranteed blockbuster, writes Sean Howe in Marvel Comics' The Untold Story. Now, Len Wein, creator of Wolverine, Storm, Colossus, and and many other characters, was Marvel's editor-in-chief during this period when Superman for Spider-Man was being developed. And the prioritization of the crossover was a source of significant angst and consternation. Al Lando was Marvel's publisher. He pulled artist Ross Andrew off of The Amazing Spider-Man to work on Superman vs. Spider-Man without consulting Len Wein. Sean Howe describes the fallout in Marvel, The Untold Story. Quote, Wein hurled himself at Lando. Marv Wolfman, who'd been sitting between the two, dove in the middle of the melee and tried to push Wein back as Stan Lee frantically tried to make peace. Wein realized the pressure was finally getting to him. The more time he spent with the business side, the more he hated the job, and Wein would step down soon after. Now, the smashing success of 1984's Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars made the crossover a regular occurrence. Once they saw how deep the gold mine went. There was no reason to ever leave the gold mine. The 12-issue limited series, which influenced continuity across the company, was the brainchild of then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, who wrote basically all the issues. The comic told the story of an immensely powerful cosmic entity named the Beyonder who transports Earth's superheroes and supervillains to a battle world where they fight for the Beyonder's entertainment. Basically, Hunger Games in the comics, mm-hmm. but before the Hunger Games, obviously. As far as superhero stories go, it is... You know, it's middling at best. The excitement comes from seeing all these characters in the same place fighting each other. Its most important contribution to Marvel canon is unquestionably Spider-Man's black costume, which would later be revealed to be a sentient parasitic symbiote. Secret Wars was the best-selling comic in a quarter century. Quote, it sold through the roof, said artist and writer John Byrne who made his bones with his work with the Uncanny X-Men and later Fantastic Four and Superman. And he said that to Sean Howe in Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. The financial windfall was so great that Marvel and DC, whose sales were kind of weak at the time, briefly talked about a licensing deal that would allow Marvel to publish Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, New Teen Titans, The Legion of Superheroes, and Justice League of America. Now, this deal fell through like a week later, but it was briefly talked about. Secret Wars was followed, of course, by Secret Wars 2 and then the Mutant Massacre, both in 1986. Then the Evolutionary War in 1988, Inferno in 1988-89. And after that, Marvel was off to the races. It was crossover, crossover, crossover. In 2020, Marvel launched Empire, King in Black. X of Swords was a follow-up to the crossover House of X and Powers of Ten. And in May 2021, it will launch the Heroes Reborn crossover. Now, the prioritization of the crossover means that those events, from a continuity standpoint, just kind of end up mattering more. Just as, you know, as we look at the Avengers movies and the Marvel movies, the events that happen in Marvel's The Avengers 
and Captain America Civil War, which is secretly an Avengers movie, just ended up kind of impacting all the titles a little bit more than mm-hmm. the events of, say, Ant-Man. Now, right. 35 years ago, Peter Parker came home from Battleworld with a black costume that became the focus of the next year of Spider-Man stories and that would give birth to Venom, Carnage, a whole host of other Spider-Man characters. It was the events of Civil War and uh, Secret Invasion that led to the storyline that saw the villains run the Marvel Universe and the company-wide uh, Dark Reign storyline. Annihilation and Annihilation Conquest, it was talked about during our Guardians podcast, set the mm-hmm. stage for the relaunch of Guardians of the Galaxy. Currently unwinding what's happening in the X-Men books would be absolutely impossible without dipping into X of Swords. Now, some, even within the comics industry, have complicated feelings about this. I wish it weren't the case. Axel Alonso, Marvel's editor-in-chief from 2011 to 2017, says in Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. And I think this quote really sums up the push and pull of the comics crossover. Quote, but the fact of the matter is the surefire way to spike a monthly title is to tie it in. The zeitgeist of the day is determined by the man or woman who goes into the comics tomorrow on Wednesday and they want to know the story counts. And the only way they know it counts is for other people to say it counts because it's tied into a bigger title. Ooh, great stuff. Thank you. All right, friends. More where that came from in mere days. We may not get to go to comic stores on Wednesdays right now, but we do get emails from Arakuen. So nothing sounds crazy That's anymore. Right. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee, Steve Allman and Zach Cram are indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, check back in for part two of our Endgame pod at the end of the week. And remember as well, if you're looking for past seasons of Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars Weekly, they're available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet, explore the rest of the story, and that you'll join us again next time for part two of our two-part Avengers Endgame Deep Dive. Until then, remember, we love you 3,000. Steve, do you want to go upstairs? I don't know, Peggy. I've been waiting for this dance for, for way too long. Let's just finish the dance. We've been dancing to the same song now for us. It's like the third or fourth time we listened to it. Do you just, just want to go upstairs? Gosh, I don't know, Peggy. It's, I don't really want to get the most out of it. You know, I've just been thinking about this moment for so long, and it's like you know, dancing with you and finally being with you. And it's, you know, I had to crash the Red Skulls playing that one time and we I didn't get to come yeah I know I know all about it see that's like oh, okay okay Are you sure we can come back we can dance after we can just go upstairs for a little while and come back and come back down and dance to it oh gosh Peggy I, I don't I tell you let's think about it let's just finish the song and we'll think about it